Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy, Ben White. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where we believe it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Ben, we're uh, we're rolling into a new episode, and you know, there's only one thing on my mind throughout the workday today. Um, probably crosses your mind a lot too. Um, probably crosses a lot of people's minds, um, and that's uh, the 1990 spring race at North Wilkesboro. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how often it actually gets in people's minds, but um, for for the sake of this episode, it's probably one of the craziest finishes in the history of NASCAR, and it's a good way to, to kick things off in in, in our conversation because um, North Wilkesboro, you know, we've said before, awesome racetrack, first place I ever visited. Ben, you got a lot of history there as well. Both of us grew up not terribly far from the track. Um, but, you know, it was a place where Junior Johnson's cars dominated throughout much of the 1970s and 80s. And Darrell Waltrip was a key cog in how dominant those Junior Johnson cars were for much of that time. But it was in 1990, Darrell had, had left Junior Johnson. He was in his fourth year and final year, as it turned out, at Hendrick Motorsports. It was a tumultuous season for DW. He didn't win a race. Uh, which was shocking to people at the time because DW was a three-time cup champion who many believe was still in his prime and really had that year kind of derailed by injuries, Ben, in, in July and a crash at Daytona in a practice session. But back up a few months before that, and you've got the spring race North Wilkesboro. Uh, Darrell Walchert knows that place like the back of his hand, and he was the fastest car. So it's been a few races into the year, and Hendrick doesn't have a win, and you're thinking, all right, so this has got to be DW's day. Uh, he was the dominant car. This was at a time, Ben, if you recall, we didn't have uh, free passes. We didn't have lucky dogs. Restarts were single file. It was tougher to get by the leader. There were fewer pit stops because the fuel cells were larger. So when you were a dominant car, you had a lot more avenues to win than you had to lose. And mm-hmm. it seemed like Daryl Walter had that one in the bag in 1990 on this sunny day in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. But fate had other plans. And uh, Ben, if you want, I- I'll toss it over to you. What do you remember uh, about that race and about the very uh, unlikely winner that we had in that race who happened to drive the number 26 car? Yes, sir, he sure did. And, you know, uh, 
first of all, thinking about Wilkesboro, there was basically the golden rule there was that if you were a driver for Junior Johnson, it's pretty much that, all right, you're going to win North Wilkesboro. That's pretty much in your contract. Uh, we went there twice a year in those days. And, you know, of course, the, the likes of, say, Daryl Waltrip and Terry Labonte and Neil Bonnet and uh, some great drivers that drove for Junior. And, you know, North Wilkesboro was, I won't say you could throw a rock at it from where the, the shops were at Ingle Hollow, but it wasn't very far at all. And that was pretty much what the, the plan was. Anytime you drove for Junior, you just knew that that you were required to, to win at North Wilkesboro. And they had a lot of wins for Junior there, those drivers did. But yeah, that particular day, it, you know, Daryl had been struggling all throughout that season to, to find victory lane. And and he did dominate that day. And and it looked like it was going to be another one of those days. And then a guy by the name of Brett Bodine comes up and steals the victory away. And, and there was a, I'm just going to go say it, it was a, a big scoring snafu that, yep. that still still rings in the ears of a lot of fans and a lot of NASCAR officials. And, you know, Daryl, if you ask him the question, nope, it wasn't a, a Brett Bodine victory. He won the race and, and Brett will stand firm on the stump and say, no, 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 it was my victory. And so will uh, Larry McReynolds, who was the crew chief that day. And, and it would still be a nose to nose confrontation, if you will, and a very deep, passionate conversation among the, the people there on the Brett Bodine side and on the Daryl side that no, it wasn't a Brett Bodine win, even though Brett says he, he did win it. And, you know, to this day, what, 30 years later or third, what, you know, whatever that number yeah. is. Isn't that day, depressing? It was, it's been 31 years. 30. Yeah, I was pretty close. Yeah. 31 <laughs> years. And they're still, they're still debating about it, but yeah, it was just one of those deals where uh, the snore, the scoring, went one way or the other and and Brett Bonine went to victory lane and Daryl didn't and I remember the comment that Daryl has told me many times about this he said Bill France Jr he was president of NASCAR went up to Daryl and Daryl of course pleading his case that you know I won the race I won the race yep and he said oh boy don't worry about it said you're gonna win a bunch more of this board hadn't won one in a while matter of fact it was his first win I said there'll be other wins for you this season. Well, there wasn't, and I don't think he, he won a race that whole year, but just, uh, it's one that's still in the, in the controversial, uh, category when it comes to, to victories in NASCAR. And, and, uh, that, that's just the way it went down that day. I think if I'm not mistaken, it was also the last time Buick went to victory lane in the cup series because the 26 car Brett Bodine was driving sponsored by Quaker state owned by drag race and legend, Kenny Bernstein. He drove a Buick Regal. But the, the thing, Ben, that, that always gets me is, so during this race, what happened, there's several cautions, and as you alluded to, there was a scoring snafu. Well, the scoring snafu was was pretty simple. The pace car supposed to pick up who Daryl Waltrip thought was the leader, that being Daryl Waltrip, and instead, mm -hmm. they pick up Brett Bodine, who was either at the tail end of the lead lap, having made his pit stop, or the first car one lap down. And in Daryl's book, DW, A Lifetime Going in Circles, he says that Brett Bodine on the radio, Ben, told his crew chief, Larry McReynolds, I'm not the leader. And Larry McReynolds comes back and says, shut up, you are the leader. You got four <laughs> fresh tires, and we're going to win this race. Um, and DW just couldn't catch up to Brett Bodine. And as it turned out, Brett led the most laps in that race. He led the last 83 laps. He led 146 on the day out of 400. 
um, right. and bagged his first win and, and made people think, you know, all right, well, this is another member of the Bodine family who's going to go on to bigger and better things like his brother Jeff. And as it turned out, it was the only win of his career. And uh, DW didn't win a race that year, so it had to really stick in his craw. Uh, one of the stranger things also about 1990, Ben, was that Hendrick Motorsports only won once. Uh, their only victory, and it wasn't even on an oval. Ricky Rudd bagged a victory at Watkins Glen later that year, and, uh, and we'll we'll chat a little bit more about Ricky Rudd in a little bit. But going back to the score in Snafu, Ben, uh, could you imagine, you know, with the the audience now? So this race was nationally televised on ESPN, but if you consider the audience now, not just watching the race on television, but also following it on social media, uh, keeping track of it online the the sheer number of people and the amount of outrage and confusion if something like that happened now say oh, yeah. say Kyle Busch is leading a race and the pace car just happens to pick up Tyler Reddick and Tyler Reddick you know holds off Kyle Busch and wins the race um probably a bad example cuz Kyle Busch probably would take it worse than anybody but um but you know you you get what I'm saying there it would be it'd be really interesting to see how uh, how much of an uproar that would cause because at the time, yeah, certainly it was a big deal in the NASCAR world, but it wasn't something that would dominate sports headlines. And I think today it probably would because um, media and a lot of people are looking for juicy headlines and stories and few things can uh, can top that in the sports world like a scoring error from, uh, from a, a sports league's leadership that impacts the result of one of its events. Cause I mean, now we're right. like, well, that just, that can't happen anymore, but it wasn't that long ago that it did. Oh, absolutely. And, and to sort of put it in perspective and, and I apologize because I don't know the exact, I don't remember the exact year when transponders uh, were placed under the cars uh, as they are today. So, so it, what I mean by transponder, I'm talking about the electric system, electrical yeah. systems, uh, and the way that they they score the cars, uh, and they're they're very advanced the way they are now. It's, it's loops all over the racetrack. But there was a time. Now get this, and I'll explain this to some of the new fans. You would have a scoring tower in the third or say fourth turn of a racetrack. And you'd have someone that was designated for each of these race teams, and they would be pencils and cards. And each time your car came by, they would look at the top of the race car. And this is really primitive, but they did this for many decades in NASCAR. And you would look at the top of the race car, and you would you would either put a check or a box uh, in a box or, or an X, say. And there would be these numbers that would pop up, and when you would do that, you would you know would write down that number as your number of the car came by you. That's mm-hmm. basically the way they scored it. And yep. and so this this was a very primitive way to do it, but there was really no other way to do it until they came up with this electric system as they have today. So that was a lot of uh, uh, you know problems were. Uh, come up in NASCAR over the years. I remember there's a time when Richard Petty and Donnie Allison had a problem in Atlanta that way. I remember there was a problem in, I believe it's Charlotte in the National 500, the late, the October race with Donnie Allison again, uh, that happened. So it happened throughout NASCAR history where you would, somebody would maybe be, they'd sneeze, all right, and and then they'd miss a guy. Yeah. <laughs> and that would it would be so it's like, oh man, did my guy did my guy come by here or not? So he'd miss a lap. Well, that's the kind of thing that they'd run into. It was just simple human error. And it wasn't meant to happen, but it would just it would happen. 
And so that's why they had to come up with a better system. But yeah, that particular day at North Wilkesboro, it was uh, another one of those human error deals. And But if you talk to Brent Bodine today, and respectfully, he still feels like he won the race, and he should feel that way because that's, that's what he feels. He took the checkered flag, and he got the trophy. Yeah. So ultimately, he wins the argument whether you believe he's right or wrong. Right. And, and Daryl will also, if you called him right now and said, Daryl, can we talk about it? He would stand firm that he he won the race that day and, and Brett Bodine should not have won it. So, I mean, those those types of arguments went down throughout NASCAR history. It would, I think it would be really difficult in this era of electronic scoring to uh, to have that problem now because yeah. it is, like I say, you got loops all around the racetrack. You got video, like you pointed out. You the power would probably have to go out. Among yeah, other things. Has, and believe it or not, that has also happened. I remember it happened at Daytona one year, where not too many years ago, when these guys were on the racetrack practice, practicing for the Coke Zero Four Hundred, and somebody hit a power pole not too far from the racetrack, and the and the lights and turns. One and two, and part of the backstretch went out, and these guys are doing what two hundred down the backstretch. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Out. That was the two thousand two thousand one Bud Shootout practice session because I was watching on TV, and uh, yeah, yeah, they just so, they're just going into turn, you know, coming out of turn two, and pow, all the lights go uh, out. So anything can happen, and uh, you know those types of deals do happen from time to time. So yeah, and going back to that 1990 race, I remember I was there in the press box and everybody's scratching their heads and it was one of those deals where half the press box is saying, hey, Brett Budine got his first win. I'm like, whoa, hold the phone. I remember Tom Higgins and Steve Wade and, but wait, wait, hold the phone, guys. Hold the phone. This is not, you know, so it was some controversy among the, the, the media members and, and, of course, they were wanting that. You look over and you see the NASCAR guys uh, over in their booth trying to figure it out and then it was a little bit chaotic there for a while and finally they had to come up with a decision and uh, of course it went to Brett but yeah the things like that are going to happen when you're when you have human error uh, in the mix and, and that's it's going to happen ben, what can I say yeah it's true uh, Ben D- Daryl Waltrip and Bobby Allison are tied on wins in the record book right mm-hmm. yes so how how interesting is it that Bobby's had to argue his case that he actually won that Grand American race that should count as a cup win, and Daryl has had to argue his case that he thinks he won the first Union 400 in 1990 uh, that should have counted as a cup win for him. So um, <laughs> had they given the wins to both of them, I know they, they both like to kind of argue that they got one more win than the other because of their lifelong rivalry, but mm-hmm. you could have given them both that win and then they'd still be tied. Um, they were, that's right. Isn't that ironic? Yeah. yeah. It is very ironic that, that, yeah. And now I, I okay, I'm going to have to swing for the bleachers here on Bobby's case because they let him very nutshell answer here. They let him start the race in a grand American car, but then when he wins the race in a grand American car, they're like, no, you can't win this race because you're in a grand American car. It's like, okay, wait, you let me start the race. You let me take the check to the green flag in a Grand American car. Then when I win it, you won't let me win it. So that's been a that's been a controversy for decades and decades. And and I actually, said, Brett Bodine was given the win in that race. No, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that's really the race that they really have no winner. So right, I I, I just really believe that they should let Bobby have 85, and that 
particular sense because they let him start the race. They gave him the checker flag and they said, wait, you're in a grand American car. So that we could do a whole show on that one. And I'd love to have Bobby come on the podcast and, and tell his side of it. And who knows, maybe we'll get him on the show one day and do that. Maybe we need to do that but, around Thanksgiving as an airing of grievances. Um, <laughs> we just kind of talk about all the things that we, we don't agree with that need to be changed. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, another one from 1990, Mark Martin's penalty that ended up costing the championship. 1997, a penalty from Dale Jarrett that cost him the championship over Jeff Gordon. Um, there, there's a lot of missing cups out there that could have gone to other people, both as right. a championship and as a race. Um, but while we're discussing scoring problems, uh, you might think, oh, well, so after 1990, 91, 92, like this never happened again, right? Well, not really, because <laughs> we're going to mm-hmm. switch gears to the open wheel world where in 1997, the IndyCar series, at that time, Indy Racing League, ran a race at Texas Motor Speedway, and Ari Leyendijk won the race, and but A.J. Foyt believed that his driver, Billy Boat, got the win, and the win they gave the win to Billy Boat, but Ari believed that he wasn't on the lead lap and that Ari actually won the race. So Ari goes into victory lane and confronts A.J. Foyt, um, which I feel like people's batting averages in confronting AJ Foyt are about point zero zero zero, and so he says, you know, he's telling AJ, he's like, you know, you guys didn't win the race, I did, and AJ Foyt just open hand slaps him in the face uh, in mm-hmm. victory lane. This is caught on television. The worst yeah, part about that. all of it is that Ari was right. Um, they that USAC scoring officials had an error, and Ari actually won the race but AJ would not give the trophy back. So there are two trophies from the same 1997 IndyCar race at Texas. AJ Foyt still has the original, and they made a new one for Ari Leyendyke and ultimately gave Ari Leyendyke the victory. Mm. Um, that, Ben, also was the impetus for the IndyCars to stop using USAC scoring and revert to an in-house scoring system, which, as I understand it, has led to them not having that problem arise again. And part yeah, of the reason, as that, you said, was for, you know, as, as electronics and, and technology grew, um, the opportunities for, for human error have kind of subsided. Wow, and that's interesting. That's the first race that I know of that actually has two winners' trophies. I didn't, I've never heard of that ever happening before. So how about that? <laughs> well, hey, A.J. Foyt, uh, you know, he didn't want to give up the trophy. He felt like if you give me a trophy, then I won, and... If uh, they try to rescind that win, then he's like, uh, well, you're not taking the trophy. So he still has it, for, for better or worse. Um, and I guess it's an interesting and ironic uh, postscript to our discussion about 1990. Daryl Waltrip struggling. Brett Bodine getting this win. Um, you know, you can you can argue either side of where you think Daryl should have won it. But Daryl was still super competitive. It was just that Hendrick Motorsports was going through a, a really challenging year in terms of uh, personnel in 1990, Ben, mostly in 1989 and into 1990, because not only were they building cars for the Cup Series only three-car team of Ricky Rudd, Daryl Waltrip, and Ken Schrader, they also had a fourth part-time car that Hendrick owned with Paul Newman, and the car was driven by Greg Sachs. And then, in addition to all that, the Hendrick guys were building all the cars for the movie Days of Thunder. And the Hendrick mm-hmm. shop guys were the ones who had to repair these torn up cars so they could put them in the movie. So there were a lot of pieces and there were a lot of people spread really thin, which is probably why Hendrick Motorsports struggled, according to their standards, in 1990, only winning once with Ricky Rudd at Watkins Glen. But they probably would have won more had it not been for 
and again, out of his control, Ben, you know, you can't blame him for this, but A.J. Foyt ran the Pepsi 400, now known as the Coke Zero Sugar 400 Daytona. Um, he ran that race, as he did. He was, you know, a super speedway guy, whether it was a stock car or an Indy car. And I can't remember if he had Dale Earnhardt practice the car. I can't remember if Dale or A.J. was in the car at the time of this practice session and it had an oil leak. And DW was behind this 14 car, and DW spun in the oil leak, and tried to get his car going, and as he grabs the clutch, he gets broadsided in the driver's side door, and um, broke his leg, and, and, and missed much of the rest of the 1990 season, and in that time, and a little bit before then, he had really kind of come to the conclusion that he wanted to own his own team, and so he left Hendrick at the end of the year, and Tide went to Ricky Rudd. So, Ben, if there's mm. any good time to talk about Ricky Rudd, now's probably the time because his first real success in the Cup Series, uh, some of it was with Bud Moore in the 15 Motocraft Ford, but it really, he really kind of came on the scene in the number 26 car, the Quaker State car that Brett Bodine drove when he took over for Ricky Rudd when Rudd went to Hendrick. And uh, actually, I should, I should step back. I think Morgan Shepard drove it after Ricky Rudd, maybe. No, I think it was, yeah, it was Morgan Shepard, then Ricky Rudd, then Brett Bodine. I had to correct myself there. But um, Ricky Rudd was a phenomenal driver, obviously. Uh, had one of the coolest nicknames in the history of NASCAR, Rooster. Uh, I have no idea how in God's name he got that nickname, Ben. You might be able to shed some light on the <laughs> I'm, subject. I'm not sure either, really. Right off the top of my head, I don't know. We need to research that. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've heard that. Dale Earnhardt used to call him that. I have no idea why, but um, Ricky Rudd was a phenomenal driver really coming into his own in the in the late 80s and early 90s and and a year after this 1990 scoring spat between Bodine and Waltrip uh, Ricky Rudd finished he was in the thick of the championship hunt all the way through the year eventually uh, coming up short to Dale Earnhardt as a lot of people did but Ben you've uh, you recently spoke with Ricky Rudd I have unfortunately not had the pleasure of meeting him but mm-hmm. uh, you, you've had several conversations with him and, and covered really the, the meat and potatoes of a career that ended at the end of the 2007 Cup season. Uh, what are some of your favorite memories of, of Ricky Rudd and, and all that he accomplished in the Cup Series? Um, because I'll, I'll kick it off and say that for you guys who didn't know Ricky Rudd, if you just look at his statistics, he, he and Ryan Blaney are kind of like the kings of like one win per year. Like, yeah. they, they're not going to go winless, but they're probably not going to win twice, but they're going to bag that one trophy. And Ricky Rudd had a phenomenal string of uh, consecutive seasons with at least one race win. And mm-hmm. I, it's it's something that, you know, you might take for granted now, but in the era of, you know, limited, uh, I guess I should say, reliability for cars, it was a lot more unpredictable. It's pretty impressive that from 1983 through 1998, Ricky Rudd won at least once every year. And yeah. he never won more than twice. And from 1988 to 96, nine years in a row, he won exactly once. Um, so, I mean, just a testament to the fact that Ricky Rudd, who wound up winning 23 races, 29 poles in his career, didn't get a championship. Closest he came was in 91, like we said. But uh, really a phenomenal career and somebody deserving of a lot of the credit and probably more that he's gotten. So, Ben, now I'll kick it over to you. Uh, some of your Ricky Rudd memories. Well, just an incredibly nice guy. The, the one thing that I really like about Ricky and just somebody that I've always enjoyed talking to uh, on the phone and then in person all these years. But he came into the to the Cup Series in 1975 and had four, four starts 
among those four stars, she pulled off a top 10, which I think was pretty impressive. And, and, you know, just trying to struggle to make it, uh, you know, in those first few years from 75 to about 78. And ironically, you know, when Daryl Waltrip was trying to get out of his contract with, uh, uh, with the Gatorade ride that he had so he could go to Junior Johnson, uh, it was Ricky Rudd uh, that they tapped to to fill the void there at Dygard. <clears throat> and excuse me, and, uh, you know, Ricky was a great racer as far as uh, driving uh, go-karts and, and racing go-karts around the United States and very, very talented doing that. And, you know, he told me, he said, my goal was to, to go IndyCar racing. I really wasn't looking to go into stock cars really? he said my, my dream was to drive in the indy 500 and race against you know rick mears and and uh you know those guys and i, I really wasn't looking to do that and then there was a guy named uh um uh, cliff champion who what a uh, great racer name by the way yeah and the last name yeah having the last name champion you can't beat that and um yeah, and and he won. He was just friends with with the champion family, and ended up uh, he was gonna you know just try to get a, working on those cars and and they were able to uh, put him in a car in the early years and uh, of course that's how his, his career began. But and then he got some good rides and one of those good rides was of course when with Richard Childress uh, in the early '80s and that's when he brought Richard Childress his first victory. Uh, at RCR Enterprises, and uh, you know, in 1982, mm-hmm. after after he left Dugard, and that sort of opened the door. So, um, but yeah, just an incredibly nice guy. And matter of fact, we talked, I believe, yesterday, uh, for an article I'm writing on Speed Sport for Speed Sport Magazine on Martinsville. Just really good on the short tracks. Of course, he, like you said, he won races every year for you know for Bud Moore and and. Kenny Bernstein and just, you know, Ricky, uh, Robert Yates and just drove for a lot of great, uh, great team owners. For a guy and, who had a history of being so good on the short tracks, he was probably one of the two best road racers. Um, when Winston Cup started to go back to, uh, to Watkins Glen, 86, 87, it was probably Ricky Rudd, Rusty Wallace and Tim Richmond were the best road racers. Wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Rudd Rudd could could really do well on the road courses because he uh, he was good on road courses when he was uh, driving, the, you know, racing go karts all those years. And I said Cliff Champion. I'm, I apologize. I meant to say Bill Champion. That was uh, uh, Cliff's dad. But anyway, he that number ten Fords. I remember that. That's the car. One of the cars he started off with. Mm-hmm. And uh, just just I don't know. I, I can't say enough good about Ricky because he's such a nice guy now. Oh, always has been, but I mean now he just hey how you doing, Ricky Rudd here, and that's the way he answers the telephone like I don't know who he is, and uh, just just enjoying life now. He like I said he retired a few years back, and uh, I'm not sure exactly all the things that he's doing now, but you know he just had a tremendous career of uh, you know just 23 victories and drove for the very best team owners. 906 starts, 23 wins, 195, 194 top fives, 374 top tens, uh, 29 poles. Just one of those guys that was really consistent. And everybody he drove for, 
you knew that he could get the job done and really, really very quiet sort of guy, but you put him behind the wheel of not only those guys teams, but then of course, in uh, he, he started his own team and of course won uh, the Brickyard 400, uh, I guess which you could say was his very best victory. Yeah, that's probably his biggest win, I'd say, no doubt. And uh, yeah, just, just a tremendous friend and a tremendous racer and I just love talking to him on the phone. Just very down to earth guy. I really like really like him as a friend. Great guy. So uh, I'm gonna go back to 2002. Ricky Rudd's last win was at Sonoma, at the time Infineon, Sears Point. It's gone by a couple names. The road course in Sonoma, California, if you will. Ricky Rudd won this race. He only last three laps. It was his 23rd and last win. Um, but it was a heartbreaker for me, Ben, because. Um, I'll just tell a personal story. You know, obviously I've, I've always liked Petty Enterprises. They won a race in 2001 with, uh, with John Andretti and they didn't win again until the team, uh, merged with uh, Gillette Everham at the end of 2008, but they came so close to winning in 2002 at Sonoma in the number 44 car with a guy named Jerry Nadeau. And Jerry Nadeau won. He got one cup win, 2000. He drove for Hendrick Motorsports. He won the last race of the year at Atlanta. But this guy had the race of his life in this car, this number 44, blue and white, Georgia Pacific, brawny, Dodge, Intrepid. Car looked really cool. I was so excited, like, to see this, you know, this team with all of its history. They're going to win this race. Like, he's got a good lead. And it's just, can the car hold up? And with three laps to go, he had a mechanical failure while leading the race. And Ricky Rudd passed him and won the race. And Jerry Nadeau finished 34th because he didn't finish the race. And that one, you know, uh, there was a few times where I wasn't happy for Ricky Rudd to win. I mean, he's a good guy and I think by all accounts deserving of, of nearly all the success he's had. But there have been a couple races at Sonoma throughout the history that I think are very notable to Ricky Rudd's career. This one, because it was his last win in 2002, and because, oh, man, I really wanted Jerry Nadeau to win. It hurt, and he never won a race again because uh, early the next year he suffered a, a career-ending head injury that caused mm-hmm. him to step away from racing. So he came out close to getting another one, um, but, uh, you know, could, couldn't make it happen through no fault of his own. So, you know, we talked about Ricky Rudd. He won that race at Sonoma. So props to you, Ricky. You were in position to win. Something happened. He got the W. That's what matters. But it was probably some vindication too, Ben, because uh, to backtrack 11 years before that to the race at Sonoma, when it was called Sears Point, uh, Ricky Rudd and Davey Allison were fighting for the lead on the last couple laps. And Davey, as they go into that that, that hard right-hand hairpin, to go on the front stretch to get the white flag. Um, Ricky Rudd is behind Davey Allison. Davey kind of cuts in on him. You know, some people might say Davey turned in on him from the lead. Some people might say Ricky Rudd should have lifted. Whatever happened, you know, whatever you think, Ricky Rudd got into Davey Allison and Davey spun out. And Davey got it going again and he was in second. So Ricky Rudd took the white flag and so he thinks he's going to win the race and he comes Mm -hmm. around to the finish line and 
They don't wave the checkered flag for him. They wave the black flag. Yeah. And then no, they wave no. the checkered flag for Davey Allison. It is the yeah. most recent time NASCAR took a win away from a driver in the middle of the race. They black flagged him for rough driving. They did not give him the win. Davey Allison was was given the win, awarded the win, earned the win, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this was on the heels barely a year after the whole Brett Bodine thing. And uh, Waddell Wilson, who was Ricky Rudd's crew chief at Hendrick in 1991, was absolutely livid after the race. And you yes, know, he was. Understandably so. That. He was saying, "This is ridiculous. This is a joke." Uh, you know, just absolutely, um, you know, seeing red mist at NASCAR uh, because of this decision they made to penalize him and take the win away. And Ricky Rudd, you know, for for all he accomplished in his career, he was never really somebody who. I think invited controversy, but that was definitely a day where you could argue maybe Ricky Rudd earned the win, maybe he didn't, um, but Davey got the win, and it was really, uh, you know, that was only two years after he and Dale Earnhardt spun on the last lap at North Wilkesboro in 89, when Ricky Rudd was driving the Quaker State car that he gave up to Brett Bodine, um, they got they went down into turn one with a few laps to go, and both of them spun out. I think it was in the last lap, actually, Ben. And Jeff Bodine yeah, grabbed the win. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. And that ultimately, uh, that cost Dale Earnhardt the championship. Because if Dale just would have yeah. finished second, he'd have beaten Rusty Wallace in points. But Dale Earnhardt doesn't run second. He never accepted running second. He was going to fight Ricky Rudd for that win. And they both fought for it. They both were going to give no quarter. And they both spun out. And <laughs> Jeff Bodine bagged a, uh, a you know, Kind of a lucky win because he was so far behind in third, but that's short track racing. Those are a couple of moments throughout Ricky Rudd's career. Sure, he likes to revisit 2002 at Sonoma. Probably wants to forget about 91 at Sonoma and 89 at North Wilkesboro. Um, but, you know, to his credit, I think he, he did a good job of handling all of those uh, all those circumstances, whether oh, they yeah. were in his favor or they didn't yeah. end up in his favor. Yeah, he did. And I remember him saying, you know, he was interviewed after the race at Wilkesboro that day. And and he did talk to Dale Earnhardt after, afterward. And he was, of course, the announcer said, what, uh, what did you, I think it might have, I remember him saying, uh, what did you talk about? I said, oh, we were just discussing the weather. <laughs> and, you know, it was like he just didn't want to talk, tell what they had talked about. I'm not all the way sure he was in the wrong uh, that day at at uh, Sonoma, really, yeah. I, I think the win was taken away. I'm not all the way sure he was totally wrong on that. Uh, I'm not sure the win should have been taken away on that one. But it sure it, set you know, a precedent that made people wonder because if you do that, don't you have to take the win away from the next guy who does it? And in, and right. there's certainly been a lot of races, even before Kyle Busch's debut in the Cup Series, where somebody dumped somebody to win the race. And to this point. 1991 at Sonoma was the last time they took the win away for it. Yeah, I just don't, I don't totally agree with the way that got handled. And it's been, again, I think we could do a whole show on all the times that there's been some controversial finishes like that. But, you know, I want to, I want to give some praise to Ricky before we move on to something else here real quick. And I did say 1982 was his Riverside victory where Richard Schiller's, I, I was wrong. 1983 is when that came. Uh, and it, Actually, it came at Riverside, California, is where the victory was there. But you know, one comes to mind that I and I talked to Ricky about this yesterday, and that was the 1998 victory at Martinsville when he was driving his own Ford, 
And that, uh, if you remember back, uh, he got out of the car and it was absolutely all they could do to get him out because he was so hot and just exhausted. And the reason that was is they had designed a seat inside the race car that was supposed to be a cool seat to where it would keep him cooler, like, you know, they use the cool helmets and yeah. the cool uniforms. Well, they had been using a cool seat all year long. And just as they fired the engine on the car uh, to start the race, they realized that something was wrong. And what had happened was the seat had malfunctioned. And so when they pulled off of the pit road, it's like, oh, crap, this is not going to be good. And so it that kind of reversed itself. So what was happening? It wasn't cooling. It was sort of getting hot. So the seats... He was uh, literally course. on the hot seat. He was really on the hot seat, <laughs> exactly. And yeah, good, good, good pun there. And so, what <laughs> was happening was not only was seat getting hot, but the seat was located over the headers that run underneath the car. So he was basically baking in yeah, the seat that is for five hundred laps around Martinsville. Can you imagine? That I mean, is... It's a long day at Martinsville anyway. Yeah. And then you're basically roasting in the seat. Uh, and so he ends up, this is how tough this guy is though. He ends up winning the race and he, I mean, they literally had to carry him out of the car and set him down in victory lane. And you can look at the photographs of the anguish on his face. And he was like, that was one of the toughest races I've ever had in my life because that seat malfunctioned and they'd taken some of the padding and stuff out of the seat so it would work better as far as the cooling aspect of it and the cooling part didn't work. And they had checked and checked all these things and then when they flipped the switch for this seat to work, it's like, this is not working. It's like, now I've got to drive 500 laps around this racetrack with the seat not working and it's gonna just bake me for 500 laps, thank you very much. And that's what happened. But he persevered. He ends up winning the race. And I was like, man, this guy is super, super tough. And he went, I don't know the exact number, but he was like Terry Labonte and Iron Man. Yeah. Went over 550 or 60 some races without missing a race for years. Can you imagine if you run 36 races a year and to, to add up to 550 some races? And again, I don't remember that number without missing a race. That yeah. was that was Ricky Rudd, but very quiet sort of guy, and he was very even tempered until you really pushed his buttons, and then it was like, okay, I'm I'm taking my gloves off, I've had enough of whatever. Super guy, I can't say enough good about him, but a very tough competitor behind the wheel of whatever he was driving, and yeah, he won 23 races, and he won maybe one or two a year, but you could count on him to do the very best. So hats off to him, very good driver. Agreed, and. You know, while we're talking about Ricky Rudd's toughness, Ben, that that's one great story. And another one that we'd be remiss to leave out was in the Bush Clash when he was driving for Bud Moore and the Wrangler Ford had an absolutely terrifying accident coming off turn mm -hmm. four. Um, sure flip, barrel rolled, um, you know, that threw him around in the car. This was, you know, a decade, two decades before, you know, the advent of Hans devices and Hutchins devices and and uh and and those things becoming commonplace so he's getting thrown around in this car got his eyes bruised up he had to tape his eyelids open to run the daytona 500 and he did yeah. and it was things like that that are a testament to how tough ricky rudd was uh, as a driver because i think in both of those cases when he was on the hot seat so to speak and when he had to have his eyelids taped open to race uh <laughs> I think most people would probably just say, you know what, maybe I should just call it a day here. And uh, to Ricky Rudd's credit, he didn't. Um, 
but you know for the success that that, that Ricky Rudd had at Martinsville. Uh, there's another guy who who also won a race at Martinsville, and I'd mentioned it a, a little bit ago um, that that we ought to talk about today. Haven't really discussed him much this year. Um, passed away in January. It's John Andretti, uh, mm-hmm. whose last win in the Cup Series was Petty Enterprise's last win as a team in 2001. Uh, John Andretti really went the road less traveled in terms of his family, because when you think of the Andretti family, you think, all right, Indy cars. Um, and John Andretti not only raced Indy cars, he won an Indy car race, and he ran top fuel dragsters, and he ran NASCAR. He was the first driver, and I think we we, we discussed this in May. We discussed that he was the first one to do the double on Memorial Day, run the Coca Cola Six Hundred, and the Indianapolis Five Hundred on the same day. He was the trailblazer of that in 1994. Um, but he had some some pretty awesome highlights throughout a NASCAR career, which was largely spent with Petty Enterprises. On two and two different uh, stints, but um, yeah, you know, when I think of John Andretti Ben, I think of him in that forty-three car. Definitely the emotional uh, celebration he had when he won that race in two thousand one, but also when he bagged Kale Yarborough Motorsports' only win in the RCA, that red and white RCA Ford in July at Daytona in nineteen ninety-seven. Um, I I remember sitting um, in the swimming pool listening to this race on MRN radio. And mm-hmm. everybody's kind of waiting for Earnhardt to pass John Andretti and get by him, and he couldn't. And John Andretti got the win. Um, and so it speaks to a guy's versatility as a driver that he can win an IndyCar. He can be very competitive and successful in NHRA drag racing and then bag some Cup Series wins throughout his career as well. Yeah, and you know what? There's a couple of things that come to mind for me, Aaron, about John Andretti. And I guess they're 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 trivial in a way but they're not and the the thing that the first thing comes to mind was a race that that he and elliot sadler ran at bristol motor speedway i believe i want to say 2001 i think i'm right about that and and elliot sadler was in the number 21 wood brothers car yep and John Andretti was in the 43 car, and they were racing for first and second. And it brought back memories of David Pearson in the 21 and Richard Petty in the 43. We saw those guys run time and time and time again against each other, Pearson and Petty, Petty and Pearson, and those iconic cars and, and winning, finishing first and second all the time through the 70s. Oh, and yeah. how cool it was to see Elliot Sadler and Andretti uh, finishing first and second. Sadler won it and John finished second. But it was just so cool to see those iconic numbers come up first and second on the on the scoring pylon at, there at, at, at Bristol back in 2001. And the second thing that I remember about John, we were at Phoenix, Arizona at the Embassy Suites there uh, staying with the NASCAR Illustrated uh, guys, all yeah. of our staff. And we would always be up about 6.30, 7 a.m. and about to go out to the racetrack each day. And I just remember John and his wife and his children there having breakfast together and, you know, John helping to butter and uh, the toast of his kids. And just, you know what I'm saying, just uh, they're, they're making sure his kids were they're all having breakfast together smiling and and having having some quality breakfast time together before 
they he had to go out to the racetrack and i'm sure they were going to maybe find a science museum or something in the area like what we used to do with our son sure when when they would come these are trivial things but important things he was a great family man very dedicated to his family and just they would go with him uh when they could when they were out of school for the summer uh towards maybe sometimes take them out of school where they could go with him but they was they would go when they could and i just remember that in my mind how each morning and i would speak to him and say hey good morning guys how are you doing and they'd be big smiles on their faces and you know they're going to go out and do some things today and i'm going to go to the track yeah i'll see you out there in a little bit small talk small conversation but i just was so so impressed with the fact that they they were a family and they were very close and it just broke my heart when i heard about his uh colon cancer diagnosis yeah and then his passing and i could relate to that too because my wife went through the same uh with colon cancer praise the lord that i still have her but i was so i was so saddened to hear of his passing on january 30th of 2020 and still hurts because he was such a nice guy loved talking to him for interviews and we just throw up a hand in the garage and can't say enough good about john andretti he was just a great man a great friend but a great competitor but i'm 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 a little choked up about that because he was just such a great person i really miss him yeah and and i think it, it it's it's really cool to if you think back throughout john andretti's cup career nobody ever really disliked him he was he was Mm -hmm. uniformly popular most guys in the cup series at some point they kind of have a rival they have some run-ins with somebody on a regular basis even if it's for a short period of time right never really happened with john Mm -hmm. andretti he kind of went about his business um people respected him you could never say john andretti didn't work hard you could never say he wasn't an excellent driver just because he wasn't afraid to try anything and you know when you look at somebody who really I mean, you include sports cars. He really did everything you could do in motorsports in the 1990s as far as top-level American series, and he was good in all of them. And yeah, he, he, he didn't have to do any of these things. So, you know, um, late 80s, early 90s, crazy to think back, but there was a time when about one-sixth to one-seventh of the IndyCar field had the last name Andretti. You had uh, Mario Andretti, the family patriarch, then Michael Andretti, Michael's brother, Jeff Andretti, and Michael's cousin, John Andretti. Uh, and they were all in the, all in the field. Cause you, can you imagine that having four people from the same family in a race with like 25 cars? Mm, amazing. Yeah. Truly. Cause like, I feel like if That's, you got into one yeah. and pissed him off, you just pissed off three more people. <laughs> and that just makes sure that just makes your, your race even that more difficult. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's amazing that uh, the well the the name Andretti is amazing anyway. I mean, you don't have to explain that name to anybody, uh, even if you did had if you lived under a rock and for your life and you had no idea uh, anything about anything when it came to motorsports. But if you said the name Andretti to anybody, maybe in any country, they would know. Oh, that's motorsports and. Yeah, to be a part of that family has got to be incredibly awesome. But like we touched on a show or two ago about how you had the name Petty or Andretti or something like that. I mean, you got to do your own thing. And yeah. that's what that's what John did. He tra- he tested the waters in several areas of motorsports and he had fun and he was successful in all of those. 
and he was a winner in all of those areas and uh, you just can't say enough good about him and and that's the beauty of of being a superstar in any form of any sport because there's always audio video that you can always go back and look at and and revisit it we've lost him and that's sad that we've lost him but the because of youtube and because of uh of audio video we can always pull those back up and relive that race that he won at daytona or relive the race he won at martinsville and to see that beautiful smile of his and just how much fun it was and, and see that hug that he got from the king or that hug that he got from kelly Yarborough and victory lane you know you can always go back and revisit those and that's the fun of of audio video you can just go back and relive them and that's that's the fun part Pretty crazy that to think that a guy with the last name Andretti won the last race for Petty and the only race for Yarborough. So yeah, no, three big cool. families, that's, three yeah, big families there. Um, pretty amazing. It yeah, is really neat. Um, but a, a postscript on on John Andretti's career. Um, my buddy Josh Roller um, texted me today and he sent me a picture of this diecast car, and it's a number twenty five Budweiser car. Uh, so you think in late nineties, number 25 Budweiser has got to be, um, mid nineties, Ken Schrader, late nineties is, um, Ricky, Ru Ricky Craven. I'm sorry, Ricky Craven or Wally Dollenbach. Nope. This one says John Andretti. And mm. so it, it's a, a Revel, Revel, Revel. I always call it Revel, diecast car. Re yes, Revel. It's Revel. And so Josh said, Hey Aaron, I have an assignment for you and Ben, John Andretti and the number 25 Budweiser Chevy. Racing reference has Andretti making zero starts for Rick Hendrick. So far, I can't find anything on the internet. I'm 100% genuinely intrigued. I bought this car at an antique mall today because it's just that crazy to me. And so it says 1998 on the car. But the moment I saw it, I thought, all right, so if it has, if you if you hadn't made a start, but it's in that car, something, you know, had to be nine points then. And it was. So uh, to answer Josh's question, it was a 1998 Budweiser shootout that John Andretti drove the number 25 Budweiser car for Rick Hendrick. It was his only start for Rick Hendrick. And the reason he made this start, Ben, was because uh, Petty Enterprises, you know, Richard Petty did not run Bush Clashes. He didn't run Bud Shootouts in his cars because uh, he had given his mom a promise that he wouldn't run a beer decal in his car. And so if you don't run the Bush or by 1998 Budweiser decal in your car, you don't get to run the Clash slash the Shootout. So mm -hmm. John Andretti... Uh, you know, got this opportunity because, um, you know, Budweiser wanted its car in the race. They needed a Bud car for the first Bud shootout. It had just been renamed, and Anheuser-Busch moved its uh, marketing spend and, and on, the, on this uh, season opening event from Bush, which is what it was from 90, 1979 to 1997. It was the Bush Clash. Now it's the Bush Clash again, but 98 was the first year that it was a Bud shootout. The name changed. I specifically remember being in fourth grade, like pissed off. Like, why would you change the name of this great race? Like I had no idea, but, um, so Budweiser needed somebody, you know, to drive their car and John Andretti drove the car. He drove the Budweiser 25 car, finished ninth. Uh, I don't remember, uh, you know, much about that race from his perspective, but that Ben, um, for me, and I don't know if you ever experienced this. You probably watched quite a bit of races with your family or listened to them. Mm -hmm, sure. Probably yeah. the biggest argument I've ever gotten in with my dad about watching a race was a 1998 Bud shootout. And 
it's funny because, you know, all right, so we're going to go from Bush Beer to Budweiser, and Budweiser's going to sponsor the race. And who wins it? Rusty Wallace and the Miller Light car. Um, but <laughs> You always take that risk, man. You always take that risk. I swear, man. I mean, it, it, that, that stuff happens. It's like every, every time. Who won the first Interstate Batteries 500 at Texas? Jeff Burton in the Exide Batteries car. It's just, you just can't beat it, you know? Um, yeah. Tony Stewart dominated the, um, the Pepsi 400, you know, and, and had a Coke associate sponsorship. It's just, that stuff, that stuff happens. But, um, mm-hmm. So this was Rusty, 1998, the Bud Shootout. How crazy has this been? Rusty Wallace is an absolute legend of sport. It was the only time he ever won at Daytona in, in anything, period. Points, win, non-points, anything. His only win at Daytona was the 1998 Bud Shootout. And it came under, um, I feel like there's a pattern developing here. It came under um, some questionable circumstances to some, including my dad. So Jeff Gordon is leading the race. I'll set it, I'll, I'll reset it for you. They're doing a one-lap shootout to decide the winner. Not because of the format. There had been a caution flag. Jeff Gordon is leading. Rusty Wallace is second. So they're coming up to the restart box, and Jeff Gordon tries to get going. Now, there are two schools of thought here. One, Gordon laid back and then broke his transmission trying to get up to speed. Or... Rusty Wallace jumped the start. And so my dad is arguing on behalf of Jeff Gordon. I was arguing on behalf of Rusty Wallace. Um, and Gordon didn't get a second chance. NASCAR didn't throw a caution. Rusty got a huge lead. They couldn't catch him. Rusty took the checkered flag. Uh, Ray Evernham channeled his inner 1991 Waddell Wilson at Sonoma and was pretty pissed off about it. Um, but... They couldn't redo it anyway for Jeff because his transmission was messed up, so it wouldn't have benefited him anyway. Um, so Rusty Wallace got to keep this win, and it was the only time he ever got a trophy at Daytona. And fittingly, Budweiser starts his sponsorship, and the Miller Light car wins the race. Can't beat it. Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, you take that risk uh, when you have these any, – well, anytime you run a race. I mean, you got sponsors in 36 race cars – and when you sponsor an event, you got to know going in that it could be the competitor that goes to victory lane and you, the race that you're sponsoring. So, yeah. I mean, it's just the name of the game. Uh, you got to know that when you sign the dotted line that if that's going to be, you're going to, you take a risk of that happening. And, uh, you know, there's times when, when sponsors try to block that kind of thing. It's like, yes. well, you can't really do that. Yeah. But you know, like yeah, the interstate batteries, people were mad as hell when Jeff Burton won. Just like all these Budweiser people got to stand in victory lane and watch the and, and stand behind the Miller Light car. Um, you know, it, it had to be kind of tough. But like you said, Ben, that's the risk that you run. I mean, that that's you know, sponsorships in any sport, something like that can happen. But in NASCAR, it's it's especially uh, not so much prevalent now, but it can happen any race. Uh, you, yeah. you know, and it's become a little bit easier now with the premier partners concept because it hasn't eliminated competition. I mean, Brad Keselowski still drove a Keystone light car at uh, the Coca-Cola 600, but Bush beer is the official beer of NASCAR. So you're going to see Kevin right. Harvick's Bush car more than anybody else uh, with a beer sponsor as far as that's concerned, but they don't eliminate competition right. doing that. I, I do know this though. I do know that there are times, obviously, that when a driver, uh, let's say a driver, unfortunately ha- suffers an injury, yeah, 
and there's another driver that they would love to have maybe fill in for that driver it's like well no because he's obligated to a particular sponsor and they can't drive that particular car obviously because it's a competitor those types of things aren't going to work i know that that's been going on you know since the early 80s where obviously you can't do it and there's clauses in in uh you know contracts that say this particular driver can't drink a particular type of water or soft drink because oh i've had to take the labels off of uh our Coca-Cola products for, for Pepsi sponsored drivers at the Speedway before I had to rip the sure. label off of a bottle of Dasani to give to Jimmy Johnson before he did a press interview. Yeah, I mean, I know, yeah, I know. I, I know that there was a time when uh, a particular driver was all set to go at a in, into a particular car and it was all said and done. And, and they're like, wait, wait, hold the phone. You can't do that because he has an associate sponsor on the side of his car. That's, you know conflicting with the car that you know that kind of thing so i mean you got to be careful about that but there you know when you get into the situations of you got you know particular cars in in the starting lineup that are going to be racing in this particular race that is sponsored by this particular type of beer or soft drink like the gloves are off on those types of deals because i mean you got to know going in if you're going to sponsor a race uh, you got all these sponsors that may or may not conflict, and that's just the way it is. I mean, you got if that you got a problem with that, you can't sign, then you got to walk away. That's it. But, that, that is the know. story. Um, yeah. And 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 well said, because you know those things can get. You know, you you know there's there's that kind of competition. But Ben, I will say something. There's not a competition in, and that is What's the that? out of the groove podcast network of which a lifetime NASCAR is a part. Um, you guys appreciate you listening to us, but also. Um, you know, check out Noah Talks NASCAR. Check out the NASCAR Weekly Podcast. Um, you know, three different podcasts, three different lines of subject matter. It completely fills the need uh, any race fan has for all things NASCAR, past, present, future. We got them all covered. Um, and to that point, Ben, I think we've crossed the finish line on episode 26. Um, hopefully they don't throw the black flag on us. We don't get Ricky Rudd at Sonoma. We actually get to cross the finish line and get the checkered flag. Um, but uh, it's been a blast as always chatting up with you. Can't wait to do it again soon. And in the meantime, you guys listening out there, throw a rating our way uh, wherever you're listening. We'd love to know your feedback. But in the meantime, for my buddy Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. I want to thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. So long, everybody.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.